Hey, welcome to the Life Church Green Bay podcast. It's our mission to lead the way in bringing the life-giving message of Jesus to the 920 and beyond. We are so glad that you're here. If this is your first time joining us, would you connect with us? We want to do life with you. And there are so many ways we can do that from wherever you are in the world. You can get connected with us and other Jesus people in one of our Facebook groups by joining us for an online service every Sunday or connecting with people through life groups and pocket churches. To learn how to get connected and find your pocket, please go to lifechurchgreenbay.com. Again, so glad you're here with us today. Here's this week's message. Hey friends, open your Bibles to the book of Jude. If you're not in a place where you have access to a traditional Bible, you can open up the YouVersion app. It's also called the Bible app and all the notes and scriptures, those have already been uploaded. Wherever it is that you're watching us from, I love you and I'm so glad that you are a part of our family. Uh, Postcards are antiquated, aren't they? I mean, who wants to buy a four by six card, write a message, then have to buy a stamp, put it in the mail and wait for it to get to its destination through snail mail when you can just take out your phone, snap a picture and text it right away? I mean, I mean, you can even put yourself in the picture. You can take a selfie and you can put your head on Mount Rushmore. And if you're good with your selfie skills, you can make it look like your head is forever chiseled onto that mountain. Like when Borglum was mapping out what this national monument would look like, he thought, hmm, who should I choose to represent Americana for all of time? I got it. George, Thomas, Theodore, Abraham, and Marty. Who would want to buy a stuffy old card when you can kill two birds with one stone and forever capture your trip and make your recipient LOL? But for generations of people, postcards were significant. They said even in the midst of a monumental moment, someone thought of them. And that person thought of them enough to go to the effort of sending them this little piece of history. I was at an estate sale a few years ago and I found this little metal box filled with old postcards. Uh, One of the guys working the sale, he saw me spending a good minute looking through the cards and even reading the back of some of them. And he said, oh, those were my grandmothers. She kept every postcard anyone ever sent her. They were significant to her. I mean, I felt like a little bit of a creeper reading his grandma's mail, but nevertheless, it's significant when someone chooses to write you, whether it's a letter or just a little postcard. And so in the scriptures, we don't speed through or skim over just because some of them are short. We slow down and we soak in the significance of the words in these postcards from heaven these single chapter books that can be read in literally no time, over breakfast or on your break at work or school. So I wanna do that today. For just a few minutes, I wanna share a message that we're calling Jude, a postcard for survival. Let's pray. God, we love you. We honor you. What an incredible opportunity that we have, God, to be together and focused on your word. God, thank you for the technology that you've given us to to be able to be seen wherever it is you want us seen. God, that people who have never met me, who I've never met, will have the opportunity to meet you through this medium that you've given for us to use. And so, God, I pray that people would happen 
upon this, that your Holy Spirit would lead and guide and direct, that you'd use the words of my mouth to change the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jude, the second to last book of the Bible, is for whatever reason, as studies have revealed, the most neglected book in the entire New Testament. Uh, maybe it's because it's such a complicated book, so complicated that, that I was actually going to end this series today, but I realized it was going to take me more than one message to get through the letter. It's brief, but it's definitely not easy reading. It's full of deep and profound thoughts that don't lend its truths to the busy or to the hurried reader. It's, it's written by Jude, who calls himself a bond servant of Jesus. And that's a big deal. That's significant because the author was Jesus' earthly half-brother. Same mama, different daddy. Jude is the son of Joseph and Mary, which, of course, flies in the face of the teaching of Mary's perpetual virginity. But he calls himself the brother of James, the James who wrote the book of James. And like his brother James, Jude wasn't a follower of Jesus until after Jesus' death and resurrection. Like for all of Jesus' life and ministry, this guy was a skeptic. He was a non-believer, which, which may explain why his writing, although brief, is so meaty. It's so deep and so profound. He comes through the ranks of skepticism and thoroughly examines his faith and then addresses things in a really direct manner. In other words, this boy don't play. Written about A.D. 65, this letter was written to believers, people who are already in the faith, but they're believers who are like slugging it out in the trenches, persecutions everywhere, and these people need help. They need direction. They need leadership. And so the theme of this letter is given in verse 3. It says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I was compelled to write to you appealing that you would contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all handed down to the saints. And like, as I read that verse, like that verse is what made this message have to be more than one message. As I studied it for this message, it made me think of this uh, beautiful little book by an author named Frank Morrison. It, it's not long. It, it's, it's almost like a pamphlet. In fact, <laughs> I think it's funny that my friend, Jonathan Pierce, he's always joking with me about the fact that I always have a little book that I'm reading. But, but this little book, written in the 30s by Frank Morrison, is called Who Moved the Stone? Which, incidentally, that book, Who Moved the Stone, is the main source material for another book some of you actually may have heard of called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. But anyway, this little book by Morrison, uh, who was an unbelieving journalist, with the mind and approach of an attorney, it was originally intended to deny the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, being the cornerstone of Christianity, Morrison believed if he could disprove the resurrection, then he would drive the death nail against our faith. But as he tried to write this condemning work, he couldn't carry out his intention. Listen to what he says in the preface. This is essentially a confession the inner story of a man who originally set out to write one kind of book and found himself compelled by the sheer force of circumstances to write another. Somehow the perspective shifted, not suddenly as in a flash of insight or inspiration, but slowly, almost imperceptibly by the very stubbornness of the facts themselves. 
The book, as it was originally planned, was left high and dry like those Thames barges when the great river goes out to meet the incoming seas. The writer discovered one day that not only could he no longer write the book as he had once conceived it, but that he would not, even if he could. He wanted to write one book, a, a book that condemned the crucifixion, but, but he ended up writing another one entirely. And this ended up being like one of the great inspirations of people in defending their faith. And so Jude says, I wanted to write one letter, but I ended up writing another. I wanted to write a letter of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, but the fact is, after facing the truth about where we are as a people, I ended up writing a book or a letter on eschatology, the study of the end times or the study of the last days. Like, I wanted to lean into something positive, our common salvation, but I received this idea that I needed to write about what we should be pushing away from, false teachers. I wanted this to be happy, I wanted it to be light, but it ended up being urgent and heavy. As I wrote, I recognized the need to talk about contending for your faith. And the same is true for me. I wanted this series to be light. <laughs> I wanted it to be happy. Postcards are happy, postcards are light. But as I began writing, God said, nope. I want you to teach my people what we believe and how to stand in that. Because your faith, it isn't casual. It isn't something that's up for grabs. It's, here's what faith is. Faith is the body of revealed truth concerning God, sin, man, Christ, and eternal things. And it's important that you know that because we're living in a day that's caught up in something that you call continual revelation. It's this idea that there's a continual body of truth that's still being written and revealed. But Jude, he, he says, no, that, that's not true. We base our faith and ultimately our lives upon what's called a closed canon of Scripture. That's the Bible. That means that the body of truth concerning God, sin, man, Christ, and eternal things has been completed and been delivered as a package. And it's, it's closed, y'all. It, it's what the Greeks call hopox delivered. It, it means once and for all delivered. In other words, it's a non-negotiable body of information. So God's will is still being revealed, but his truth, that's already been written. And because that truth has already been written, we're supposed to rigorously guard it, rigorously defend it, or as Jude would say it, we're to contend earnestly for it. Now, you may be interested to know that the Greek word from which we get the word contend is the word agonizomai. It's where we get the English word agony. So he's saying there's occasionally going to be pain. There will occasionally be agony connected to contending for the truth. Christianity is not for the faint of heart. I mean, if you've ever had to stand your ground for your faith in the midst of naysayers or in the midst of unbelievers, you've had the opportunity to contend for your faith. Now, for a long time, I was a youth pastor. And I, I love teenagers. And one of the things that I really loved about teenagers is taking them to youth camp. This concentrated idea of having kids in a spiritual environment without any 
distractions. And I've watched countless kids, their hearts and their minds, their lives be changed. That's why we're so excited about the Young Life Camp and why we want people to sponsor kids to be able to go to that. I've, I've seen kids literally, like they went to, to camp and they were, I mean, they were the biggest rebel you've ever seen in your life. And by the end of the week, they were called to be a missionary. And they ended up going and being missionaries overseas. And what was interesting to me was this dynamic of coming back from camp with these kids and releasing them back into their own environment. And more times than I could count, I watched these kids' parents, the same parents who begged me to get their kids' lives on track, literally destroy what God had done in their lives. Just negativity and they had to contend for their faith. They came back and the very people who were supposed to be encouraging them were tearing them down. And, and so the style of this letter is understandably passionate. It's understandably intense. It's compelling. It pokes you in the chest. It's saying, this book, it's the truth of God. So we have to not only believe it or even live it, we have to defend it at all costs. I wanted to write you a happy letter filled with hard-eyed emojis, but, but I was compelled to write something different. And so out of this first portion, there's three questions that I think are key to understanding this letter. Here's the first. Why did Jude change his plans? Well, in verse three, we just read, he says, I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, but while I was writing it, I felt the necessity to change my message. But why? Verse four, because certain people have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turned the grace of God into licentiousness. That means license and, and to deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So the Spirit of God revealed to Jude that there was a significant erosion happening in the church, and that erosion warranted a strong contending for the faith, which just real quick, notice the words crept in unnoticed. Those words can just go unnoticed to us, but they're really expressive words. In Jude's day, they were only used to describe two situations either cleverly planned words used by an attorney seeping gradually into the minds of the judge and jury, or to describe an outlaw or a fugitive slipping back into a country from which he'd already been expelled. So it's the thought of a quiet, patient, measured, imperceptible, even insidious kind of creeping in. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, I grew up, I mean, literally right across the street from the Detroit River. People tell you that you didn't want to swim in the Detroit River because you might bump into a body or some toxins. And, and so right off the Detroit River, there was this little reservoir where my friends and I, we would go and swim. And it was fed by the Detroit River, so I don't know that it was any, any cleaner than the river. But, you know, we'd go in there and we'd swim and goof off and laugh and, and do all kinds of mean things with each other, try to drown each other. And, and one day, me and a couple other buddies of mine, we went swimming at this reservoir. And, and man, I dove in and, and then they dove in after me. And as I went under the water, I opened my eyes and out of nowhere, I saw about six feet away from me, this massive water moccasin slithering toward me, creeping toward me. And man, listen, 
You just saw four kids from the hood walk on water. This thing crept in unnoticed. And that's the thought here, because a number of people with ungodly motives had been slipping in, slithering into the church, and they were hedonistic in their mindset. That meant they lived by this theory that we should chase pleasure at any price, that our, our flesh is innately evil because we were born in sin and shaped in iniquity. But that's okay because our bodies, they're not connected to our spirits, and so God doesn't notice or actually even care what we do with our bodies. So eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And it's in those ideas that this early church was introduced to the whole message of Gnosticism which I talked about a few weeks ago in my message on 2 John, which was written about 20 years after this. And I think it's amazing the things that we tolerate and how they can grow when we don't eradicate them up front. Hello, Roe versus Wade. Because the majority was silent and didn't contend for their beliefs, that majority has now become the minority. And so then, in Jude's day, these teachers were they were taking the idea of God's grace and they were twisting it to mean license. And, and that still exists today, even in the church, where some Reformed people believe in this idea of eternal security being like a get-out-of-jail-for-free card, where no matter what you do, you've been chosen by God to spend eternity with him. So in Jude's day, these people had slithered in or crept in unnoticed and brought a message of immorality which in that day was called antinomianism. And that literally means against law. And they promoted this lawless lifestyle. I mean, come on, y'all. Don't you see how this has slithered in today? How the spirit of lawlessness is creeping into our culture right now? Like these people taught that there's no such thing as moral law. Hello, my body is my body or love is love. These were insidious teachers who, who changed the message of morality. They denied the deity of Jesus saying he was just one of many great teachers. And, and guys, they didn't carry big signs that said they were heretics or that they were false teachers. On the contrary, they came with a message of great appeal and inclusion. They always do. You'll hardly ever meet an offensive false teacher. They're the most gracious, understanding, pleasant kind of people you'll ever meet. They have time to talk. They understand your questions. I mean, they can't answer them, but they understand them. They say things like, I hear you. They're willing to give you space to work through your doubts. They'll seldom tell you what you're doing is wrong because after all, we're all on a journey to discover our own truth. We just need to connect with the divine source of energy. But their great hope is to sneak in like the snake in the reservoir or like the snake in the garden. And just at the right moment, their venom will enter your system. Did God really say? So Jude, he's bright enough and mature enough in his spiritual life to hear from the Holy Spirit and recognize that the plans for his letter, they needed to be changed. I really wanted to talk to you about common salvation, about how we can all just get along, but there's a message that is more significant than that. Which brings me to the second key to understanding this letter. Number two, what characterized these false teachers? Well, I mean, we've already highlighted that. There was a marked immorality. They turned grace into license. And there was a denial of the deity of Jesus. Like, he's just one of many emanations from the heavens, which is alive in our day through the popularization of things like the word namaste. 
Guys, we use it as a greeting. We wear it on our clothes. We drink our coffee with it on our mugs. But in truth, it's an unintentional invitation. The word means the spirit in me connects to the spirit in you. But guys, you need to be careful what you connect yourself to. The Bible tells us not to be unequally yoked. And what that meant was don't connect two oxen that aren't of an equal size to your plow. Because if you do that, you'll never be able to plow straight. If you'll do that, it'll take you off course. So we unknowingly say to each other, the spirit in me connects to the spirit in you. But in truth, that word has its core in Hinduism. And in Hinduism, that word actually means, I bow to the divine in you, or I submit to the divine in you, whatever that divine may be. What are you unknowingly submitting yourself to? Which brings us to the third key to understanding this letter. Why should we contend for the faith? I mean, like, bro, what's the big deal? Why get so passionate? Why get so intense? That's easy because there's an outlaw. There's a fugitive that's slipping back into a place from which he's already been expelled, which is your life, because there's a snake in the reservoir who's just waiting for the right moment to sink his fangs into your spirit, to pump his venom into your system, shutting down your spiritual antibodies. He's, he's wanting to send you on a journey to discover your own truth, which sounds so inviting and so inclusive. Problem is, the idea of your own truth is insidious because you don't have your own truth. And while we're at it, can I just say that contrary to what you may have been taught, Christianity isn't inclusive, it's exclusive. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in a culture of free speech and spiritual enlightenment, that's offensive. So we have to, we have to, Contend earnestly for our faith. We have to be willing to go through some pain. We have to be willing to endure some agony to secure it, both for ourselves and for the people we love, because wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few will find it. And so I wonder, which gate are you gonna choose? The wide or the narrow? Now, I know what you wanna say, but honestly, I don't know. Because Jesus said, many will say, I did this and this and this and this for you. But in the end, he says, I'll have to say, depart from me. I never knew you. You found your own truth, but in the process, you lived in lawlessness. It's why we get this letter from Jude, a postcard for survival. Because Christianity, it's not for the faint of heart. Maybe you're watching this and you're like shell-shocked right now. You know, this kind of message, it's, it's out of my realm. It's out of my wheelhouse. But it's necessary because there are so many of us who believe that all these roads lead to a place that they don't lead to. You heard me say that salvation is inclusive, that it's not inclusive, that it's exclusive. And that's true. But here's the good news. Even though it's exclusive, there are no exclusions. It's available to anyone, including you. Jesus said, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
So here's what I've discovered about Christianity is that it's not easy. It is difficult. There are many times that it is very painful, but it's always worth it. And so if you're watching this and you say, Sean, I don't have a relationship with Jesus, but I want to be part of this family. It's really easy to make that happen. The the Bible just says, if you call on the name of the Lord, you confess that you're a sinner and believe that he can change you, then he will. And so if you're watching this, you say, Sean, I wanna be a part of the family of God. Would you just repeat a prayer after me? And if you say it after me and believe it, you'll be saved. But you say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, but I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Will you come into my heart? Will you change me? Will you make me different? Will you make me new? Will you be my Lord? And will you be my Savior? In Jesus' name, amen. Friend, I'm so excited about the decision that you just made. And I would love it if you would connect with us so that we can help you, so that we can lock arms with you and help you survive this first onslaught of the enemy. And so would you just message us and let us know that you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior and we'll take the opportunity to follow up with you. But we're not done. Maybe you're watching this and you say, Sean, like I'm a believer, like I, I prayed the prayer. But if you're honest, you've been chasing your own truth. Guys, I've been there. I, I have a friend who was a brilliant, wonderful pastor and he loved to reach out to uh, Buddhists. And he always wore Buddha beads. And he convinced me to do the same. He told me that if I wore these Buddha beads, it would remind me to pray for his Buddhist friends. But it didn't. It just connected me to something that I wasn't supposed to be connected to. It watered down my approach. And so if you say, Sean, there's things in me that I think indicate that I've been chasing my own truth. Can I pray for you, God, for my friends who are desperately trying to find this balance, trying to figure out who they are, but more importantly, who they serve. God, reveal yourself to them. Connect yourself to them. Close us off to things that are unhealthy and open us up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for joining us this week. Did you know we have discussion questions for each message? You can download them and talk it over with your friends and family. Go to lifechurchgreenbay.com to download today.